You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then, if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thedez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messengers went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men 
gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. David, 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 what have you done? Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you for episode 761 of this podcast from Greeley, Colorado on Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. That was a reading of the darkest chapter in the legacy of King David in the Old Testament of our Bibles, 2 Samuel chapter 11. We have a lot. We have a lot here. And just like we should take a close look at the example of David when David is a good example, we should take a close look at the example of David when he's a bad example. And here he has really messed up. And it's not a simple oops. It's a compound fracture of the character of David, the reputation of David, the legacy of David. This is a big deal, and there's a lot to unpack. Even just within this one chapter, there's a lot here. And, oh, by the way, I'll just take this opportunity on the front end before we get into the nitty-gritty of what God's Word tells us about David and Bathsheba and Uriah. The wife of Uriah is Bathsheba, and she's referred to that way throughout Scripture. When this is referenced, when there's a reference made to it, just like with Abigail, that she was the widow of Nabal before she was the wife of David. So also the fact that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, that's referenced and it follows her. And that's just who she was. Even once Uriah is dead and once she is the wife of David, there's no forgetting. There's no papering over the memory of her first husband, who she was married to at the time that David first took her. But this is one of the reasons why I personally find the Bible to be so credible. What trips a lot of people up is the whole miracles thing. Supernatural, they're materialists, but then they were conditioned that way from little on up. That's all they hear all the time in the media, from the scientific community, from the intelligentsia, from politicians, from their schooling is just 
pure naturalism. It's just materialism. But when they come to the supernatural things, the miracles and such recorded in the Bible, it just throws them for a loop. And they say, ah, I can't believe that that would happen. No, 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 no. Either A, that's totally made up and this is just a book of fables, or they'll say, this is allegory. This is not being presented to us for us to believe that these things literally happen. This is not literally true. It's just figuratively true. This is talking about something psychological that they were having a hard time explaining in conventional language. These are all just metaphors. I don't agree with that. I don't have a hard time believing in a general sense, not that it's always easy, but then I I don't kick back. I don't reject the supernatural that is recorded in scripture. But then one thing that I find really compelling, one of the reasons why I find what's recorded as having happened supernaturally to be easy to believe is because of passages like this, where human nature is presented. This is not propaganda. This is not, let's present the glossiest, most sanitized version of the heroes of our culture and our country and our ethnos, our tribe. Let's present them as only ever being the good guys, only ever doing the right thing, only ever saying the right thing in contrast to the peoples around us. No, actually quite the opposite in most cases. In some cases you do have, wow, that was really exemplary. You know, in the case of David, for instance, there's a lot that's a good example where he puts his trust in God. But then there are vignettes like this. There are moments like this that are very realistic. There are little snapshots of even the best of men in the story, with the exception of Jesus, all of the best men. If the details are presented in enough of a supply, you know, if there are enough details presented, if enough time is spent on them, you will get something like this. And you will know that this guy was not perfect. He sinned. This guy was not always having the right attitude. He was not always believing and not doubting. He was not always saying what was true only. He was not always comprehending. He was not always understanding. He was not always doing what he should have done sometimes in the case of even the man after God's own heart who's been blessed in every way, even in the way of being tested and tried, but then brought through it to being king over the whole country. Even in the case of this guy, we're going to present the rest of the story. And the rest of the story includes David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so let's do get into the nitty gritty. I do have other things I want to talk with you about that are more current events related, but then this is current events related. And that's the point. This is how people are in the present. This is how we are in the present. We can identify with characters in this story And oh, by the way, even if you're not any of the characters pictured, you know of situations that are similar enough to this that it's important for you to understand the unchangeable character of God. God is still God. At the very last, the very last verse in this, that's still who God is, and he always will be the same. His character does not wax and wane. He doesn't become more God over time, less God over time as he gets tired. No, he doesn't get tired. His strength is not eroding. It's not decreasing. His wisdom is not increasing over time as he sees and he learns. No, he's not becoming God. He is God and always has been God and always will be God. But then 
we're people. And we've been people for quite a long time, not forever, not eternally, like God is eternal. But since the beginning, particularly in relation to the fall, we have not just finitude, we also have a sinful nature. And we have temptation to sin in the world. We have our own flesh. We have our own sinful nature, not just our finitude, not just our limitedness. It's not just, oh, I forgot. And it's not just, oh, I got distracted. And it's not just, oops. In the case of David and Bathsheba, we see a very realistic portrait of how one sin piles on the next, one sin stacks on the next, and then you have this exponential increase of the consequences, increasingly dire consequences. And this is not the end either. This is just, here's what happened. We'll see more of the impact as we go on. But for now, while we're here, let's just consider the anatomy of this transgression. Let's break it down. Starting in verse one, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So far, so good, right? They're on a winning streak. And here's some more winning. Isn't that great? Oh, did we mention that David remained at Jerusalem? Yeah, David remained at Jerusalem. He sends Joab and his servants and all Israel off to fight the Ammonites, but David stays back. We could speculate. Some people at this point love to speculate about why David stayed back. The simple fact is that it doesn't say. It doesn't say why he stayed back. So I'm not going to speculate. Sometimes I will, but in this case, I'm just going to move right along because to a certain extent, the scripture is not telling us why he stayed back should at least imply to our minds that that's not the most important detail. So what other details are we given? Verse two, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So that's where he was then. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he sounds bored, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now, a few things here, a few details are helping to fill out the context of this transgression. This is the setup. David is back at home. All of the rest of Israel is in the field during the time of the year when the kings go out to battle. David is king. David is not going out to battle. And so maybe that's his first mistake. It's presented as though it's relevant to where his head is at and what follows after. It's at least relevant to explain that the expectations were other than that he would be staying back. The expectation was, oh, you're a king. You should be in the field with your men. You should be leading your men into battle. Also, interestingly, and this is not a major point, but it's a point to consider when David is trying to cover over his sin, the fact that he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant and she's another man's wife, she's the wife of Uriah. When he's trying to cover over that by bringing Uriah back and arranging what will doubtless be a bit of intimacy between Uriah and his wife if Uriah goes home, because she is very beautiful, oh, by the way, and he's been in the field who knows how long, maybe weeks, maybe months. Uriah's response probably causes David to feel even more shame. So it's not just that David 
stayed back and got himself into trouble with another man's wife. He had plenty of wives of his own. He got into trouble with somebody else's wife and got her pregnant. It's not just that that he should be ashamed of, and he actually has committed a capital offense regarding. It's also that the man whose wife he took and laid with is such an honorable man that when he has the opportunity to go home to his wife and relax, you know, have some fun, maybe love on your wife a little bit in such a way as to give you a reasonable assurance that when it turns out, yes, in fact, she is pregnant, we can say that it's yours. We can say that this is your child. Uriah's response to say, no, how could I do that? Joab and my fellow soldiers, they're in the field. No, no, I can't. I couldn't possibly in good conscience. Ooh, ouch. That's like salt in the wound. That's like lemon juice in the eyes. If you're in David's spot and you're already feeling extraordinarily guilty, extraordinarily insecure and ashamed of yourself because you know you've messed up here, you know this is big trouble. Not only is it inconvenient to your plan for how you're going to cover this up that your eye won't go home, it's also a, an added aggravation of your discomfort. And that may contribute to how susceptible David is to what he does next. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's not skip too much. Verses two to five is all there is to the original transgression. The original transgression is a big one, but it doesn't stop there. But then before we get too far afield, before we move on too fast, appreciate that David is bored. He has not done what was expected, what would be expected of him as king. He's not done what would be expected of him just for being him. David is the kind of guy who's out in the field. He's the kind of guy that does go into battle. Maybe he's tired of fighting. Maybe he's tired of battles. Maybe he's resting too much on his laurels because God fights for them. But then if God only fights for them, then why is David sending Joab and his servants and all Israel? So that doesn't add up. Maybe this is David being negligent and that's how it starts actually. And so to console himself, to make himself feel less insecure, less embarrassed, less bothered by a loss of face with having stayed back while he sent everybody else off to fight. Maybe the prospect of taking somebody else's woman hit at just the wrong time, not to excuse, but to explain why he was especially vulnerable, why he was especially susceptible in this moment. Nevertheless, speculation aside, David sees from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now, David is on a roof, and how does he see a woman bathing? Apparently, she didn't close the windows, but then if all of the other men have gone off to fight, and if you don't necessarily have uh, a good way to light the inside of your house, maybe you bathe inside the house, you draw some water, and you get yourself cleaned up inside the house with the windows open. And so the king has this house of cedar that was built for him by the carpenters of Hiram with the cedars of Lebanon from Hiram. And he's got some altitude and he can see down into windows. Not everybody would be able to. And so maybe Bathsheba just didn't think anything of it. She just thought, well, there's nobody to worry about. Maybe they had high windows. And so it would be very unusual. It's a very slim chance that anybody is going to see in. In any event, it happens. All we know 
for sure, for sure, is that this woman is bathing and she is very beautiful. Now, David could have stopped right here. He doesn't. He could have seen her. He could have thought, wow, she's really good looking. And I should go see what my wives are up to. You know, he could have done that. He could, he could have done that. And you know that he's got several wives. We don't know how many, but he's multiplied wives for himself. Why doesn't he? It doesn't say. We could speculate, but that's neither here nor there. All we know is that he doesn't. He doesn't send for one of his wives, or at least it doesn't record that he does that. Maybe the outcome would have been very, very different if he had seen Bathsheba, beautiful Bathsheba, bathing and had seen that she was very beautiful and then sought out his own wife, you know, which he had several of, he had plenty of. Surely not all of them were busy. He doesn't do that or doesn't record him doing that. Instead, what he does is he inquires about the woman. So now he's bringing other people in to this situation, which he will continue to do for the rest of the chapter. He will involve others. And this is not just totally private, secret. Maybe he thinks this is innocent enough. You know, why shouldn't he inquire, right? He's just curious. He inquires and one says to him, it's bash. She says, I assume it's a she, maybe it's a he. Is this not Bathsheba? But basically, it's a rhetorical question. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So then David could stop there too. He could say, oh, wow. Oh, congratulations, Uriah. Wow. Good for Uriah. Yeah, he did well. That could have been David's response. He doesn't stop there or it doesn't record him saying anything of the sort or reorienting his attitude in that way to be happy for Uriah. What does he do instead? He covets. He covets the wife of his neighbor. Next, he enlists still more people in his buildup to transgression. He sends messengers to Bathsheba, and it says he took her. So then he's abusing his authority as king. This is not why those messengers serve David, or it's not why they should be. I'm sure it's not what they signed up for. It's not what they thought they were getting into when they decided to work for David. But then here they are. And how do you tell the king no? And that's true of the messengers. And that's also true of Bathsheba. But it says, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. We're only four verses in, not even all the way through verse four. We're only four verses into the chapter and there's 27 verses in the chapter. And this is the capital offense. David is now an adulterer. Bathsheba is now an adulteress. And this brings the death penalty. This is a capital offense. King or no king, you've just taken somebody else's wife. While they're away fighting your battles, by the way, shame on you. This is the original transgression, but it doesn't stop there. If that had been all there was to it, maybe David, after the fact, was like, oy vey, what have I done? But it doesn't stop there. Some period of weeks goes by because that's about how long it takes to find out for a woman that she's pregnant, you know, conception to showing signs, it's going to be weeks. So weeks go by. And oh, by the way, Uriah is still in the field, apparently, hasn't come home. But Bathsheba, verse five, conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So then again, you know, messengers are involved. The servants of David who have stayed back 
to attend to him. They know that David sent for her. They know that he was asking about her. They know that she was brought to him. They know if she has sent messengers to him, they know, at least some of them, that she is pregnant. So then the talk around town, or at least the talk around David's house, is going to be David got Uriah's wife pregnant. Now, that doesn't mean everybody knows. That doesn't mean the whole country knows. But some people know, and David now needs to go into damage control mode. Verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. No explanation. No explanation as to why David wants to see Uriah. But then if David is sending word to Joab, that is to say he's sending messengers again. And so now, possibly some of the same people who know that Bathsheba is pregnant and that David had sent for her before, you know, weeks before she sent a message back to him that she was pregnant. Now, possibly the messengers that David is sending to Joab know the reason. It doesn't say that they spread that around, but a growing number of people are at least possibly aware. (laughs) It's possible that they know. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing. You know, so we get some small talk here. Hey, how's Joab? How are the people doing? How's the war going? Right? Very much like a guilty person will do, talking about everything else, anything else, trying to be subtle, trying to act like that's all it was. That's the reason, right? So it's deception. He's trying to imply shrewdly that the only reason he's sending for Uriah is to find out about how goes the war. But then verse 8, David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Again, not direct. Not, hey, Uriah, go home and lay with your wife so that people think she's pregnant with your child. I mean, of course, you can't just come out and say that, right? So he doesn't say that. But he tells Uriah, go down to your house. And Uriah does leave the king's house. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to do that. He doesn't get into it disagreement or a debate with the king about the propriety of going back to his house. All the while, oh, by the way, David's in his house. So how would that go? You know, if you're saying this is objectively the measure and the standard of propriety and what is honorable, you would be implying something that would give offense to David, but then there's not going to be any helping it once David finds out that Uriah has not gone home like he told him to. And oh, by the way, you know, Uriah Not going home when David tells him, go home, is a little bit of a lapse of discipline. But then is that in part because when you stay home and you don't go out to battle with the men that you've sent off to war against the Ammonites, maybe they fall out of practice following your orders. Could that be a part of it? They get used to making decisions without your say-so, without you telling them what to do. And then all of a sudden you're telling them to do something that doesn't make sense to you. And you don't. You don't do it, right? Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord. So that is to say, David was his Lord. Did not go down to his house when they told David. So then, interesting, either David was inquiring, hey, did Uriah go home like I told him to? Or it was, wow, what a great guy this Uriah is. Man, that's fantastic. But then they, probably the servants of David's, who, if not, messengers back and forth with Bathsheba or to Joab. They're at least co-servants, they're fellow servants with those servants. 
And so the servants, at least probably, are putting this all together. They've probably figured it out, what this is all about. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Again, indirect, casual, trying to keep it on the down low, trying to be subtle. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Ouch. There it is. Right between the eyes. David has not just slept with anybody's wife. He slept with the wife of somebody who, in this moment, in this context, at this time, has much more honor, much more of a sense of duty than David has shown. Even before the incident with Bathsheba, sending for her, lying with her, getting her pregnant. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. What does David do then? David tries to get Uriah drunk because he's hoping, well, maybe your integrity, your honor, your sense of duty, maybe that will get relaxed enough for you to go see what the missus is up to. I'll just get you a little bit drunk. And then surely, surely then, hopefully then, you'll go home to your wife and lay with her so that people will believe, you'll believe that this is your child. It doesn't work. Verse 13, he did not go down to his house. So then David's mind is probably totally out of options. He's probably thinking, Uriah, you've left me no choice. I don't want to do this. I hate to do this. But he's also, what? Being selfish again. So he's on a track. And it seems to me as though the track does not start on this selfishness bit, putting himself before everybody else, forgetting himself, forgetting his duty, forgetting why he has this authority in the first place. It doesn't start when he sends for Bathsheba and then lies with her. It would seem as though it starts when he stays back in the springtime when kings go off to war. He stays back all the while sending everybody else. It starts there that he forgets himself, that he forgets that it's no more the duty of Joab and his mighty men and all Israel to go and fight the Ammonites than it is David's. In fact, this is part of what comes with the territory. If you would be first in authority and prestige in Israel, then you should also be the first to step up to the plate and do your duty when it comes to making war and prosecuting a war against the enemies of Israel. It would seem as though what David does next, telling Joab to put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest and then pull everybody else back so that Uriah is cut down, it would seem as though that's just the next step. And this is where the very libertarian folk, they get it wrong when they say, oh, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body with other people. There doesn't need to be any kind of sexual ethic. There don't need to be any kinds of laws regarding sex because how is it your business? What does it mean to you? How does it affect you? It affects people in moments like this, in moments just like this. It didn't start with, hey, let's kill Uriah, essentially. Let's murder Uriah or arrange for his death, put it that way, but really murder Uriah. You know, if you use a a sword, David, it's not the sword that killed Uriah, it's you. If you use a gun in our day, it's not the gun that killed the person, it's 
the person holding the gun who fired the gun, they pulled the trigger, pointing it at the person that they wanted to kill. They're the one who stands trial. The gun doesn't go to prison. The person who committed the murder goes to prison. Well, so also when you use people, when you even use the enemy, in this case, the Ammonites, to kill somebody, the effect is the same. And Joab is complicit, of course. And whoever Joab gives orders to, to fall back, when they follow those orders, they're complicit. And so now David has not just committed murder directly. He's also made all of these other men who send the message, deliver the message, help to carry out the scheme complicit. They're all murderers. They're all in on it. And then curiously, there's this back and forth. When Joab sends word back to David that it's done. One, what Joab tells the messenger, if David gets angry, remind him of this story about who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubaseth. You know, don't just tell him the bad news. Make sure he knows if he gets angry that Uriah is dead. And so the messenger, uh, it doesn't seem, delivers the message exactly how Joab had told him to, perhaps because he was afraid David being angry would take it out on him. But then David sends a message that's very curious back to Joab as well. Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. That sounds like a veiled threat. How far are you going to take this, David? Would you kill Joab? Would you have Joab killed? If Joab tries to extort you with this information, tries to hold this over your head? See, it's just a mess, right? It's just a mess, and it spiraled entirely out of control, which of course it was going to. That's what sin does. The scariest verse, though, the scariest thing at the very, very last here is that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And that'll throw the people who only think about people for a loop. But keep in mind, for the Christian, we love our neighbor as ourself because he first loved us. We love the people around us because we love God in whose image our neighbor is made. We love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Then subsequently, because we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, we love our neighbor as ourselves. When you don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you get into all sorts of trouble, including but not limited to how you relate to your neighbor, because that's a lot of how God tells us to love him is how we relate to our neighbor. It's not all the same. You don't start with loving your neighbor any way your neighbor says to love you or any way that seems good to you. And then you can say, ah, see, I'm loving God. No. If God has said, treat people around you this way, don't treat them that way, for instance, don't sleep with their wife while they're off at war and then kill them, you know, have, have arrange for their death. You know, don't do that. That's not loving your neighbor. Whatever David might have told himself about how, you know, this would have just wrecked Uriah. It was a mercy. You know, this would have really destabilized the whole kingdom. And it will, by the way. So you didn't avoid that. You just doubled down on being dumb, being foolish, being wicked here. But if David rationalized it every step of the way, it really wasn't for the sake of anybody else. It wasn't for Bathsheba's sake. It wasn't for Uriah's sake. It wasn't for the sake of his servants. It wasn't for the sake of Joab and the men in the field fighting. It wasn't for the sake of Israel. It wasn't for the sake of God. It was all just for David's sake. It was all about David. So the whole chapter is David just being selfish and only thinking about himself being completely self-absorbed, completely given over to whatever does he want next. Ooh, uh uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble. Well, now I don't want to be in trouble. 
So now what do I need to do? How do I get myself out of this trouble? The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What did he do? Not just sleeping with Uriah's wife, also arranging for Uriah to be killed. Also, oh, by the way, involving all these other people in a conspiracy. Oh, by the way, too. Can you imagine if this happened in our day and you started to talk a little bit about it, you know, in the early stages, as it was first rumored to happen, or you had firsthand knowledge, if you started talking about it in our day, the dismissal would be, oh yeah, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. I don't know. No, 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 no. Au contraire, mes amis. This is human nature. This is how people operate. Even the best of men. If this is how David operates at his lowest moment, don't think that the worst of men are above this. No, be wise. But then also don't just think of this as this is what other people are capable of. This is what other people do. You know, I got to watch out for other people. No, this is what you and I are capable of. We do this kind of a thing. Look at this like a mirror and not like the mirror that you, you know, hold up to other people so they can see their messy hair. They can see their bit of food stuck in their teeth. No, no, this is a mirror that you hold up to see your own reflection in. And don't forget it. But for the grace of God, there go I also. This is not the end of the story as far as David and Bathsheba go. As far as the fallout, we will find out soon enough as we continue on in tomorrow's episode in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Lord willing, we'll record again tomorrow, if not hopefully the next day. But in our next episode, we will talk about 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we'll see how the consequences just get bigger and worse for all involved. For now, let's move on and let's talk about some more present day stories and circumstances and discussions. For starters, I'll share with you a link in the description for this podcast episode of a story from just last year, last summer. Uh, this story, <laughs> it's a little odd, but I'll explain. I'll unpack it. Peggy Fletcher Stack reports for the Salt Lake Tribune. At long last, a photo of Mormon founder Joseph Smith emerges. And I only bring this up in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 11 because just like I was saying as we were talking through what we just read, the tendency for people when they're talking about their heroes, uh, heroes of their faith, heroes of their founding, uh, people that were instrumental in the establishment of their movement, or you might say in this case, church, but really any movement. It could be a national founding. It could be a company, you know, a, a major important brand on the world stage, uh, really anything, right? Any organization, the tendency can be to present a rather romanticized portrait. And in this case, actually, interestingly, <laughs> that's literally what we find. At long last, a photo of Mormon founder Joseph Smith emerges, and here we have a side-by-side -side of a portrait that was painted of Joseph Smith and what is said to be a photo that was found recently in a locket that belonged to one of Joseph Smith's descendants. And you can see some similarities. They're not totally, totally different pictures, but they're different enough. The oil painting version 
is rather more handsome, I'll say, rather more dashing. Uh, this guy in the painting looks like a gentleman. He looks like somebody who came from money and he's an aristocrat and he should be the president or he should be the founding father of a church. He looks like one of the founding fathers of the United States of America, actually, truth be told. He looks like he could have signed the Declaration of Independence. The photograph, on the other hand, if this is in fact a photograph of Joseph Smith, the photograph appears to be just a guy, right? This is a guy. I mean, he's not especially ugly, but he does not look like he could be one of the founding fathers. He looks like a fairly common man. He looks, in my opinion, he looks like just a typical guy in the mid-19th century. Nothing extraordinary, nothing super special. And that's the point, right? That's the point is the tendency to romanticize the founding fathers of a nation or a church or a corporation or any institution among men, the tendency to romanticize their lives and romanticize who they were and maybe sweep under the rug their mistakes or their vices or their weaknesses and to exaggerate their strengths, exaggerate how wise or good, or strong, or successful they were, that tendency is very common. And we're not that far down the road from when Mormonism was founded. Really, truly, we're we're not. By contrast, the Old Testament is thousands of years old. The New Testament is thousands of years old, you know, fewer thousands of years old. But, But the books of the Old and the New Testament are thousands of years old, and yet remarkably intact and maintained even with a realistic portrait of who these men were. You read about David doing what he does in 2 Samuel 11, and you say, yeah, that's <laughs> that's believable. I, this makes sense. This is a realistic portrait of what a man might do, any man might do in David's case, in David's circumstances, unfortunately. Yeah, that's really regrettable. You know, and and we wince because oh, yeah. I could see that happening. And this is oh, by the way, my beef with Veggie Tales and this is my beef with too much of Christian movie making, Christian storytelling in the mainstream evangelical scene in America today is it does romanticize. It does sanitize. I would say it sterilizes. And it makes of no account the value all scriptures breathed out by God, it makes the scriptures impotent to instruct us, to sober us, to bring us to a place of recognizing and confronting and confessing and repenting of our sin. When we see the same kinds of tendencies in ourselves, in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own reactions to things, to what these men that we're reading about in the Bible did and are said to have said and said to have reacted like, in their circumstances, if we're presented with a sterilized picture of how they lived, how they related to God, how they related to one another, how they related to their circumstances, we lose out on quite a lot. And I would say actually too, the Mormon folk, insofar as they've romanticized it, they've allowed the people who took up the mantle of leadership in their movement after the death of Joseph Smith, insofar as they've allowed and maybe even insisted on the romanticizing of their movement 
they have similarly missed out on a very real need to repent, repent of their apostasy, repent of their heresy. But then they're not the only ones, of course. And if you were to confront the Mormon on that point, they would say, well, it's just not, that's not particular to us. Well, yes, you're right. It's not, but it should be that we're aiming for genuineness and truth. We rejoice in the truth. We don't embrace lies, even very pleasant lies, because we see where very pleasant lies can very quickly go. When you run out of lies, the only thing left to maintain the so-called integrity of somebody's reputation or a movement's reputation, a people's reputation, supposedly, but it's really you know, actually just this one guy who really messed up and he doesn't want to get in trouble for it, doesn't want the consequences of his bad behavior, where it can ultimately it is death, right? This can be a matter of life and death. Uh, sin leads to death. It, the original sin was eating fruit, for crying out loud, because it wasn't actually about the fruit. And it wasn't actually about the act of sexual intimacy, right? God designed that. It's a good gift from God. Sexual intimacy is. A man desiring a very beautiful woman to lay with her, that's a prerequisite for propagation of the species. Right? So that's not at issue. What's at issue is lies ultimately led to the death of an innocent man, an honorable man in the case of Uriah. Lies led to the suffering of quite a lot of other people who were caught up in this net of deceit and infidelity and betrayal. And so I, I, bring, I bring this case of Mormonism up as an example, as one example, and I've got another point to make about Mormonism here in just a moment, but I bring it up because it's easier for mainstream evangelical Christians to think clearly and to be objective about Mormonism because we're like, yeah, Mormonism, that's apostate. That's heretical. <clears throat> they do not believe rightly. Well, yeah, agreed. But I think that they're the Samaritans of our day. And I think you can have good Samaritans who put to shame uh, the supposedly orthodox upstanding Jews. And that's another thing that needs to be brought into our thinking on this in order for us to think rightly again, because we haven't been thinking rightly. We've been thinking that if our doctrine on paper is sound, then who cares how we act? Who cares what we do? David's doctrine on paper was quite good. It was quite good. That's no excuse, and that's no satisfaction for Uriah when his wife has been taken and impregnated by David. I mean, what a betrayal. That's no consolation for Uriah when he's been sent to the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest and his fellows, his battle buddies, his brothers in arms are told to pull back and let him be cut down. That's no consolation to those men either. I mean, there's no getting that back again like you had it before. When you go where David went, there's no going back again. Not really. Never again will people trust you the same Never again will you have the same peace of mind that you did at one time. All you will be able to do is cry out to God, begging forgiveness, begging mercy, and yet there will be consequences. And so also, I think insofar as much of American mainstream evangelical Christianity is just functional liberalism, on paper we have good doctrinal statements, and that's how you know a church is good, is you go check out their website and you see their doctrinal statement and you say, okay, great, right? 
Let's go. I love what they believe. And then you show up and you're like, you guys don't do what you say you believe. You don't, you don't act like it. You don't treat each other. You don't treat other people like you say you believe these things. Oh, but you're not supposed to say that. You're not supposed to talk like that. Because why? Because the stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-headed don't want to be called to repentance. And yet, part of what's standing in the way of their confession and repentance is that they have an overly romanticized view of themselves. You know, it's like if I were to commission an oil painting of myself, and I'm not going to, by the way, but if I were, right, just suppose I were to do that, and somebody painted me looking very penitent, looking very pious, looking very uh, morose about my sin, about my sinful nature, uh, but man alive, looking very much like the guy who's going to get his sins forgiven. I'm just so wrecked by my sins. If I were to have an oil painting commissioned of myself and then hang that on the wall, and then every morning I get up and I don't look in the mirror. I just look at that. I, I just study that oil painting. What would you say about me? Wouldn't you say I'm ridiculous? <laughs> Wouldn't I be ridiculous whether you said I was or not? Of course, that would be ridiculous, right? That would be shameful. And so what I'm really getting at here is we need to stop with the romanticized view of ourselves and our churches, lower C, local churches. You know, it, this shouldn't turn into we hate ourselves, we hate one another, we hate our churches, just tear it all down. No, 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 because that could actually just be another variation on the same tune, you know, just the remix. You're tearing it down and that somehow is piety. No, 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 just confess. Confess and agree with God. Be of one mind instead of double-minded. Confess and agree with God that when we depart from God's holy and righteous standard, we have sinned. When we promote lies and then plead innocence and plead ignorance, the truth is not in us. And ask God for forgiveness and then move forward predicated on that. And actually look ourselves in the mirror and don't forget immediately what we looked like, like the man who's a hearer of the word only and not a doer also. That's the point. If we do that, then we ourselves will be the better for it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we do that, our local churches will be more faithful, more blessed, more at peace, more fruitful. We will have better fellowship. We will have better evangelism, better discipleship. But also, if you scale it up, the mainstream of American evangelicalism will be better as well. You have to start by looking your own self in the mirror instead of waking up every morning and looking at some romanticized oil portrait, oil painting that may or may not be what you look like. It might not have even been what you looked like when it was painted, but then if it's an old painting, the older you get, the more days go by from when you sat, the less and less it probably looks like you actually, unless you have a mirror or other people around you are allowed to give you honest feedback about what they see, or both. Like I said, though, I have another story about Mormonism. And this one is from 2014, November 11th of 2014, so nine years ago, just over. From NPR, Sam Sanders reported, Mormon Church admits founder Joseph Smith had up to 40 wives in an essay posted without fanfare to its website, in late October, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints said for the first time that Joseph Smith, founder of the Mormon Church, had as many as 40 wives. 
Some of those women were also married to friends of his. And one was only 14 when she became Smith's wife. The essay is the latest in a series of expert texts that have been posted on the Latter-day Saints website, touching on issues from the church's ban on black people in the priesthood to historical questions about the Book of Mormon. The essay attracting the most media attention this week is one of several on the issue of polygamy appearing in a section of the LDS website called Gospel Topics. The essay acknowledges that polygamy has long been an issue that few in the church have felt comfortable speaking about. Quote, plural marriage was introduced among the early saints incrementally, and participants were asked to keep their actions confidential. They did not discuss their experiences publicly or in writing until after the Latter-day Saints had moved to Utah and church leaders had publicly acknowledged the practice. The historical record of early plural marriage is therefore thin. Few records of the time provide details and later reminiscences are not always reliable. Some ambiguity will always accompany our knowledge about this issue, end quote. The essay points out several details about Smith's marriages. It says that an angel appeared to Smith three times between 1834 and 1842 and commanded him to proceed with plural marriage. The third time that angel appeared, the essay says, it threatened to destroy Joseph unless he obeyed. Smith's wives were believed to be between the ages of 20 and 40 at the time they were sealed or married to him, but the youngest wife sealed to Smith was only 14 years old when she married him. This young bride was also the daughter of two of Smith's close friends. His youngest bride said later that she was only bonded to Smith for eternity, and the essay suggests, quote, that the relationship did not involve sexual relations, end quote. The practice of eternal marriage was predicated on the idea that a marriage could last beyond death, but if a marriage had an, quote, eternity-only ceiling, end quote, sexual relations between husband and wife were only permitted in the next life. The essay's conclusion clearly states that LDS members, quote, no longer practice plural marriage, end quote, but another essay on the topic said the practice had benefits for the church. Quote, for many who practiced it, plural marriage was a significant sacrifice. Despite the hardships some experienced, the faithfulness of those who practiced plural marriage continues to benefit the church in innumerable ways. Through the lineage of these 19th century saints have come many Latter-day Saints, who have been faithful to their gospel covenants as righteous mothers and fathers, loyal disciples of Jesus Christ, and devoted church members, leaders, and missionaries. Modern Latter-day Saints honor and respect these pioneers who gave so much for their faith, families, and community, end quote. Now, I'll just stop right there. There's more to the article. That's enough. That's enough for me to make the point that I want to make here, which is, you don't know. I don't know. You don't know, and I don't know much more than what they're willing to now concede. If there's a if there's a place to start, <laughs> I'm not even sure where it is. Let me just start here. Second Samuel chapter 11. And really everything that leads up to this that's told of David is very upfront. Like I've said before, as you're reading through, don't suppose that everything described is being prescribed. If not for the very last verse in 2 Samuel 11, talking about God being displeased by the thing that David had done, that wouldn't be a sign that God approved. So not everything that David does is rubber stamped or signed off on, or you have God in heaven saying, hmm, good, yes, excellent. You know, no. But the fact that you do have, in this case, the very last verse saying, this displeased God, what? Which part? You know, was it the staying back? instead of going out with the army to fight the Ammonites? 
Was it that? Was it the seeing of Bathsheba bathing from his rooftop and then not just going and finding his own wife to see what she was up to? <laughs> Go see what the missus is up to. Your missus, by the way, in case that wasn't clear. Apparently it wasn't clear to David. You know, was it the taking and sending for Bathsheba, taking her and laying with her and getting her pregnant thing? Was that what displeased the Lord? Was it the having Uriah killed after trying to get him to go home and be with his wife? Was it all of the above? It would seem to me at least plausible that it was all of the above. It was all of it. Everything that David did in that chapter was bad. It was wrong. It was deceitful. It was treacherous. It was selfish. It was wicked. And yet, one, we're told that it displeased God. Two, the same temptation that seized him, I believe, ran roughshod over the Mormons. Those early Mormons, when we're reading about Joseph Smith, you know, whether he actually did have a fallen angel appear to him, and I believe it was a fallen angel, if there was an angel that appeared to him, whether or not he just made that up and he was just trying to get authority for the things he was claiming or whether he actually was in communion with fallen angels, deceitful spirits. The effect was the same when we read that women were married to Joseph Smith's friends and also him at the same time. Or there's this phrasing, sealed, right? Sealed for the next life because Mormons have really messed up theology. Really crazy beliefs about where God where God comes from, that he was originally a man in another universe, and the God over that universe was pleased with him and so rewarded him by making him the God over this universe. And he's got all these spirit wives, and that's where people come from. That's where souls come from. They have crazy ideas about what the reward for the next life actually means. You know, if you're a good godly man in this life, a good godly Mormon in the next life, then you have all these wives. But then I don't buy it for a moment, personally, that this was so spiritual, it was so above board, it was so pious, and we should remember these guys and, and think highly of them. You know, One, it's easier for me, not being a Mormon, to say that. But then also, part of the reason why it's easier is because I have passages like the one that I just read for you, 2 Samuel 11. A man with power and authority sees somebody else's wife and wants her, and so he comes up with elaborate ruses, ever more elaborate alibis or schemes to cover over what at root is just the fact that he saw somebody else's wife and wanted to sleep with her. That's really all that it was. That's what it all boiled down to. Uh, the age range too is interesting. You know, From 20 to 40, one young lady as young as 14, and she was married to two other men when she was sealed to Joseph Smith. I mean, that's not even in keeping with plural marriage in the Bible because you never have a legitimate or even neutral instance of plural marriage going in that direction where a woman has multiple husbands all at the same time. You never have that in the biblical narrative. You do have at least a neutral presentation of a man having multiple wives all at the same time, but then you also have a very, very strict framing of if a woman is married to a man and she lays with some other man of her own will, that being sin, that being adultery. And you or I, we may not like that. We may not 
understand that. We may not be comfortable with that. We may be confused by that because our conception of these things in our day is so egalitarian and it's so indistinguishing, non-discriminating on purpose. And, and actually that's like a big word that is thrown around to say, you know, what you just said, what you're proposing is wrong and we should just automatically reject it and not even talk about it is that's discriminatory. You're discriminating. Well, but yeah, that's just it, right? We're too good at not discriminating. And so we don't discriminate. But then this business with Joseph Smith and his followers and the leaders in the Mormon church, not even just taking lots and lots of wives, but even taking wives from other men, there's no excuse. I mean, there's, there's no squaring that with scripture. We're not talking about a denomination. We're not talking about a branch of Christianity. We're talking about a cult. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about a false gospel. I mean, that's, this, this is why, this kind of stuff, this is why Christians do not regard Mormons as fellow believers, as brothers. You, you can't even just in hindsight say that was all okay. No, no, no. A good tree does not bear bad fruit. The Mormon founder, Joseph Smith, and the original followers, they did not bear good fruit. They bore fruit in keeping with lawlessness and iniquity and sin. And it was just covetousness, right? It wasn't some pious thing. Oh, some angel told me that your wife is sealed to me or should be sealed to me for the next life. No, it was <laughs> your sinful nature guy said, she looks very beautiful or you are feeling insecure and you're going to assert dominance over the other men in your midst in this way. This is not of God. Now, I've said that, and the next two links will touch on ever so briefly on the way to a more generalized essay that we'll discuss. But the next two both relate to this question of Mormonism and the legitimacy or lack thereof, which I would say, you know, it's a total lack of legitimacy when it comes to Mormonism. But these two together, taken together, touch on and build on why it's important that we would read the scriptures for what they say, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help us God. Joel Abbott at Not to Be published a piece November 8th. I guess Calvin University professors need to hear this, but yes, Christ is supreme. A tweet from Kristen Dumay, author of Jesus and John Wayne, which I've talked about on this podcast before. A tweet from her says, I don't know how you take a close look at Johnson's career, his positions, and his rhetoric and not call that Christian supremacy. And I don't think there's a Christian nationalism scale where his own words don't place him firmly in that category. Here she was replying to Matthew D. Taylor, who wrote, here's the Fox News interview where Kaylee McEnany quotes K.K. Dumay, without naming her, to Mike Johnson Declaring a policy debate in the same interview, a matter of good versus evil, seems like an odd way to disprove you're a zealot or fundamentalist. Which is to say, Calvin University? You guys are supposedly Christians? You're supposedly teaching at a Christian university? I mean, it's called Calvin University. Shouldn't this be a reformed theology university? Shouldn't your theology be conservative? It's not, by the way. I hate to tell you. Spoiler alert. It's not. Kristen Dumay is saying Mike Johnson is a Christian nationalist. Why? Because he said that the Bible is his worldview. And then she goes farther and she says, 
he's a Christian supremacist. I agree with Joel Abbott. Yeah, I I agree. Christ is supreme. And is that objectionable now? Do you find that offensive? And this is, again, why I say the American evangelical church, the mainstream, not just functional liberals, but then also increasingly in the cases of Kristen Dumais or people like Kristen Dumais, they're pseudo-intellectuals and they might even be pseudo-Christians, fake Christians, false Christians who purport to be a part of the church, purport to be telling what the true gospel is. And all the while, if they find the idea of Christ being supreme and Lord over every area of our lives and the Bible being the word of God, if they object to that, if they say that that's offensive and distasteful and alarming and concerning, well, maybe just maybe we should not listen to them <laughs> just on anything, you know, listen to them. Okay. Maybe they have some true things that they say, but boy, howdy, do not go along with them. Don't put them in positions of authority over yourself. Not when you're wise, will you make yourself subject to somebody who says, I'm a Christian, but hmm, calling Christ supreme, living in such a way, speaking in such a way as to imply that I should do what he says or agree with Christ, my savior. Oh, yeah, no. Mike Johnson comes up in our next story here as well. And actually, on that point, with this next segment, and this will be the only one in this episode where we do play some audio, I'll just start with the audio, and you can take a listen to what Glenn Beck has to say about Mike Johnson. This from a post by Blaze TV staff, October 26th, so we're coming up on a month ago. It's not exactly late-breaking news, but it pertains. And I'll play the audio, and then I'll explain why. Why I say this pertains to our next segment and the scripture reading at the top of the episode. But here it is. Without further ado, cut one. Take a listen. Oh, my gosh. The new speaker is here, Stu. Are you excited? Mike Johnson! He's the one we've been looking for. He's the one. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what I know about Mike Johnson. Okay, now that we have that covered, <laughs> let me tell you how I view this. Um, the media loves Mike, uh, or hates Mike Johnson. Today. Hates him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, hates him. Passionately hate him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You remember when McCarthy was Hitler? Oh, yeah, he was the most right-wing speaker yeah. in history. Yeah, this is, this is Hitler's Hitler. No. This, is, this is the one Hitler looked up to going, wow, that guy's bad. Yeah, I noticed this in the yeah. coverage. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, Kevin McCarthy's this like moderate guy yeah. that I, we could all understand and get along with. But right. this guy? But this guy. He's crazy. Ooh, he's nuts. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm just going to give you, I, I, just, I want you to do, I want you to view this in a different way. I remember being on the air. When the, I don't remember, white or black smoke came out of uh, the Vatican Mm. and we're like, got a new pope. And the media was like, oh, we're going to hate all these popes, all these popes, they're bad popes. This pope is going to be a really bad pope. They're so bigoted. And, And then Francis, they pulled out the name and they were, I mean, immediately within 10 minutes, everyone on CNN, MSNBC, everybody was like, 
oh, he's a good pope. He's one of the best popes ever. He's going to be, wow, we love this guy. And I remember looking at Stu saying, uh-oh. Uh-oh, there's something really <laughs> wrong with this guy, okay? So what we what did we do? We didn't know. We had a pretty good indication because the media loved him. Seeing that the media does not love Johnson, I think that's a pretty good sign. But just like this pope, I didn't want to say, uh-oh, more than be cautious. So I'm going to say the same thing here. Be cautious. But Maybe we have a good pope. I mean, a good uh, speaker. Unlike, I said, be cautious, this guy could be a nightmare. Be cautious, this guy might be good. Okay, <clears throat> so that's all. That's all. I know that was a short clip, but that's all we need for the purposes of this discussion, and I'll explain. I'll explain why. Uh, for one, if you agree with Glenn Beck, do you back off of agreeing with Glenn Beck here because he's a Mormon. Oh, by the way, he's a Mormon. I don't know if everybody knew that, but those who are familiar with Glenn Beck's name maybe didn't know because he will talk about Jesus and he'll invite people on to talk about Jesus. And he talks about faith and he talks about morality and he talks about the Bible, but he's a Mormon. And my point in going there is similar to how you don't want to just assume that whatever you hear in the mainstream corporate news media should be taken for granted. You know, whatever they say we love now, we love it. Whatever they say we hate now, we hate it. You know, you don't want to be led around like that. You also don't want to say just the opposite, where whatever they say we love, ah, we hate that. You know, whatever they say we hate, we love that now. You know, just opposite day, because that goes back to the classic Looney Tunes bit where Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny are trying to get Elmer Fudd confused about which season it is. Is it duck season or is it rabbit season? Well, if you ask Daffy Duck, he says it's rabbit season. Go figure. If you ask Bugs Bunny, he says it's duck season. So then they're just contradicting each other back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And then all of a sudden, Bugs Bunny in the classic bit switches it up and he says rabbit season. And because Daffy Duck's blood is up too much, he falls for it, and he is just saying the opposite of what Bugs Bunny says. And so then he says, duck season, fire! And Elmer Fudd proceeds to blast him. Uh, we don't want to be that way. Uh, in fact, we need to not be that way. And that's why, in part, James is telling us true when he says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. But then there's also more to it where you want to be quick to listen because you want to be wise as serpents. And you want to understand that people will get you upset intentionally on purpose, and they'll try to get you, if they know the game, if they know when they zig, you're going to zag, they may, just to bluff, just to head fake you, they may zig when they actually want you to zag. Not zigging because they want you to zig, but zigging because they want you to zag and then they've got you. And so you have to be on the lookout for that. You've got to be on the lookout for that when it's people and you all the more, rather than less, need to be sober and vigilant for your adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because the devil definitely knows that trick and will even quote scripture. 
and he'll quote it out of context. But then what do you not do? You don't say, well, those scriptures that you're quoting are not true. You say it is written and you correctly handle, you rightly handle the word of truth because you've studied to show yourself an approved workman who need not be ashamed. You quote scripture right back to the devil, just like Jesus does. It is written. You rightly interpret, you rightly handle the word of truth when somebody else is going to wrongly and they're going to twist it and they're going to be subtle. I bring this up in part in relation to the Mormonism business and also in part in relation to 2 Samuel chapter 11 because you can go uncarefully into your thinking about all of the things we've just discussed to this point in two very opposite directions. And it would be a mistake. It would be a mistake to say that all there is to the legacy of David, for instance, is this business with Bathsheba. It is a part of his legacy. It is a major, major sin. I mean, adultery, that's a capital offense. He deserves death for that. Murder, that's a capital offense. He deserves death for that, king or no king. But then you don't then, <laughs> you, you don't then say, ah, because he did this, then everything else that preceded that, we reinterpret as bad. Because what would that not be? That would not be rightly handling the word of truth. When what he does is good, when what he says is true, affirm that, but how do you know? Because God was pleased with it, because God affirmed it, because God said that that was true, what he said. When what he does is wrong, when it displeases God, when what he did was bad, when what he said was not true, when he was being deceitful, like in 2 Samuel chapter 11, appreciate not just about David, but about people in general, about yourself and about the people who occupy your space, that you have to be attentive because sometimes it may be somebody who does a bad thing or believes untrue things actually does tell the truth every now and then. And you wouldn't want to disagree with the truth just because they said a true thing, but they have a reputation for telling lies. You wouldn't want to say, well, that's not a good thing that you just did. Why? How do I know? Because you've done a lot of bad things. Well, no, no, this may be objectively a good thing to do. And don't be so simplistic. Don't be unwise. That's the point. That's the point I'm trying to make here. The parable of the Good Samaritan, for instance, is holding up somebody very like in our day, the Mormons. They use a lot of the same lingo, a lot of the same verbiage. They remix a lot of what God had said would be worshiping in spirit and in truth. They remix it. And so they're regarded as apostate. They're regarded as other and heretics, false worshipers of God by good Jews. And yet in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is demonstrating that, you know, even these Samaritans, they can have weird doctrine and they could still be loving their neighbor as I'm telling you. That's the second command that's like the first and greatest, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. They can still be loving their neighbor better than actually the very pious Jews who said, I'm on my way to synagogue. I'm on, I'm on my way to do a holy thing. I don't have time for this guy beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. Well, so also in our day, you can have people in your vicinity who have weird doctrine. They have bad doctrine, bad theology, and that's not a blank check. That doesn't give you a blank check to treat them however you would. 
or to give blanket condemnations for anything they would say, anything that they would do because, well, you know, their theology is a little bit funny or it's really bad. So also the flip side, the inverse is, remember why Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan in the first place. It was to put to shame those who prided themselves on being Jews, being sons of Abraham, and yet they honored God with their lips and their hearts were far from him. They were hypocrites. They were playing at virtue. They were playing, acting at being these godly people. And we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be that way where we have a form of godliness and we deny its power, where we have good theology on paper, but functionally we're lawless. When it comes to our practical day-to-day life, we just do whatever. We do whatever and we say, grace, grace, grace that is greater than all my sins. And it's cheap to us. We don't want to be that way. We know the mind of Christ. We know the mind of God as to those who are that way. Or if we study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, we know. And that's the point. You can't take it for granted that these people over here, you can just implicitly trust them. Don't ever double check. Don't ever cross-reference. Don't ever search the scriptures to see whether these things are so. Search the scriptures daily. Even with yourself, you can't trust that just because your theology is good on paper, therefore, you know whatever you have in mind to do, whatever your plan is to do next can be trusted because it could start with something very innocuous or seemingly subjective, seemingly ambiguous, seemingly neutral, something as simple as I stay back while I send Israel and the mighty men and Joab off to fight the Ammonites. I stay back. What drives that? We should pay close attention to in ourselves and not necessarily that you intervene all the time when it's other people. You're always policing their ambiguous decisions, but you watch, you observe, you pay attention. And you don't just trust that it's all okay because this person has a track record for doing what's good and saying what's true. No, you know, for their sake and for everybody else's sake, don't just assume that because what? Something like the trouble that David gets into can happen to those people and to folks in your vicinity. And you don't want to be a part of that. You don't want to be party to it. You don't want to be complicit in it. You don't want to be swept up in it where you lose the capacity to say, I can't do this thing. I I can't send that message. I can't go and fetch Bathsheba for you. Why do you want her to come to you? No, I can't tell Uriah that. You have to have the capacity to be able to say no when to say yes would make you complicit in evil. But then this all really brings us to the main subject, actually, the main essay that I want you to consider with me in this episode, and that is American Constitutions, Natural Law, and Constitution Making in the Founding Era, a piece by John Dynan at Public Discourse, thepublicdiscourse.com, the Journal of the Witherspoon Institute, published August 25th, 2021. So think in the thick of the COVID lockdowns, mandates, all that craziness that is not far enough back in the rearview mirror. This piece sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, JP Chavez. Thank you, as always, JP, for excellent material. It's been sitting in my browser tab for far too long. I don't even know how long at this point, but weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, months and months. I'm starting to work my way through slowly but surely all of these links that I've just been waiting for the right text or the right moment, the right current events items to talk about along with as a setup. And here we are, right? Here we are 
So let's dive right in to John Dinan's essay from 2021. He writes, in order to understand the role of natural law in the American founding, it is helpful to examine the early state constitutions that preceded the U.S. Constitution. Not only did many of them explicitly recognize natural rights as pre-political rights to which all individuals are entitled, they also proclaimed all political power to be inherent in the people. Governments to be legitimate only insofar as they secure these rights and are grounded in popular authority and, therefore, that the people have an inalienable right to reform or abolish such governments that fail or cease to serve these ends. That's the preview, and here is the main body, starting from the top. It is not always appreciated that the U.S. Constitution was preceded by 15 state constitutions and that many delegates to the Federal Convention participated in this state constitution-making process and drew heavily on and presumed the continued vitality of these state documents. In order to understand the role of natural law in the American founding, it is helpful to examine these early state constitutions. Not only did many of them explicitly recognize natural rights as pre-political rights to which all individuals are entitled, they also proclaimed all political power to be inherent in the people, governments to be legitimate only insofar as they secure these rights and are grounded in popular authority, and therefore that the People have an inalienable right to reform or abolish such governments that fail or cease to serve these ends. In short, these principles expressed in the Declaration of Independence were enshrined and occasionally expanded upon in the founding era state constitutions that provided the context and model for the federal constitution. Now, before I continue, I did reread it, and that's fine. There was a little bit more in that first paragraph of the main body of the text compared with the preview text, the highlighted featured text. But I read it twice, and it's still not enough. It's still not enough for this to necessarily sink in for most of us. And I could read it again. I won't. You could just rewind, replay what I read for you uh, to this point. But what I will say is, knowing something of the writings that had helped to shape this debate prior to the settling of the colonies here in the New World, knowing, for instance, Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford talks quite a lot about the kings of the Old Testament, the government of Old Testament Israel as constituted by God, knowing something of Osginus' argument in the Magna Carta of Humanity, where he presents the ancient people of Israel as originally a republic. This was a republican form of government. It wasn't a theocracy because it was the rule of law. Here are all these laws, and it's not just the priests who just do whatever, and they you know, decipher omens and read entrails and such like that, cast lots and engage in divination. It was, here is law, and the law applies to the priests, and it applies to the king if you have a king at some point, and it applies to all of the people. It applies to the people who are from here, and they've always been here, and they've been here for generations, it applies to also the sojourners who sojourn among you, the people from not here who come and visit, they're just passing through, or they move here from some other country. It was a republic, if you can keep it, also in Samuel Rutherford's analysis, as he is grappling with the political theology of Roman Catholics in particular, with their divine right of kings 
claims the king is the law, he went back to the biblical text. And so then you fast forward from Samuel Rutherford to Tom Paine, for instance, and others, others of these Enlightenment thinkers and writers, political theorists, philosophers, and they start adapting the deep dive into Old Testament history and Old Testament law. They start to adapt it and strip away the express references to the scriptures. And they start to look at, okay, what do we see in nature, right? General revelation, not instead of necessarily always special revelation, the scriptures, but then if we look at history, if we look at the Greeks and the Romans, if we look at cultures all over the world, for all of human history, what do we find? See where there's overlap. See where there's a broad consensus. See where there's agreement. All the while, they were looking at all of that. They were analyzing and assessing all of that in a very Christian context. And speaking of the consent of the governed, the consent of the governed was going to be highly Christianized. And so whatever form of government they were going to come up with, it couldn't be anti-Christian. The state constitutions could not be anti-Christian. The state constitutions could favor a certain denomination, and they did in some cases. They could favor a certain Christian tradition over others, which they did in some cases, but they couldn't be anti-Christian in a general sense. They could be perhaps phrased in such a way as to be exclusive or to exclude, to discriminate against certain Christian denominations or certain types of Christian thinking that were common to various denominations, but they couldn't be anti-Christian expressly. Because why? Because the consent of the governed depended on what was being presented as the good to reward and the evil to punish by the civil magistrate instituted by God would be understood as framed and defined by what God says is good and evil, what God says is true and false. Back to John Dinan's public discourse piece here, though. He writes, when the 55 delegates assembled at the Federal Constitutional Convention in 1787, they drew on more than a decade of experience with American constitution-making, as states had already grappled with such questions as what a constitution should contain and how it should be enacted. In January 1776, New Hampshire was the first state to adopt a constitution as opposed to the charters under which colonies had previously been governed. However, this was only intended to be a temporary constitution as were the constitutions of South Carolina and New Jersey, adopted in the next several months. In June of the same year, Virginia was the first state to enact a constitution intended to be an enduring document, and all of the state constitutions drafted thereafter were similarly intended to be enduring charters. Virginia was also the first state to adopt a separate Declaration of Rights, and an earlier draft of this document circulated widely among the states and exerted a significant influence on the Declaration of Independence promulgated the next month. In June 1780, Massachusetts became the first state to adopt a constitution that was drafted by delegates elected specifically for this purpose and ratified by the people. This process of popular ratification would thereafter be followed by most other state constitution makers as well as the framers of the U.S. Constitution. As mentioned, states adopted 15 constitutions prior to 1787. Most states adopted a single constitution during this period, as was the case with New Jersey, 1776, Virginia, 
1776, Delaware, 1776, Pennsylvania, 1776, Maryland, 1776, North Carolina, 1776, New York, 1777, Georgia, 1777, and Massachusetts, 1780, which is the only founding era state constitution to endure to this day and the oldest current constitution in the world. However, Several states adopted multiple constitutions, including South Carolina, 1776, 1778, and New Hampshire, 1776, 1784, as well as Vermont, 1777, 1786, which did not enter the Union until 1791. Of the original 13 states, only Connecticut and Rhode Island failed to adopt founding-era constitutions. They retained their colonial charters until 1818 and 1842, respectively. It is estimated that as many as one half of the delegates to the federal convention participated in the framing of these state constitutions and the influence of these state constitutions on the work of the convention was proclaimed even by individuals who were not present in Philadelphia in 1787. John Adams, the principal drafter of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, boasted, what is the Constitution of the United States? but that of Massachusetts, New York, and Maryland. There is not a feature of it which cannot be found in one or the other. So what is this, right? What is this all about? Remember, it is not so long ago that it was typical for the subjects of a king to have to ask very, very nicely for justice, to ask very, very nicely for intervention, to protect their interests, or perhaps even to protect their interests against the king's own orders. You had to ask very nicely, and if you didn't ask exactly the right way, and if the king didn't take kindly to you asking in the first place or objecting or raising an issue at all, then if the divine right of king's folks were right, the king could come after you and everybody close to you. And where was the protection? What would guard you against a king who, for instance, for example, wanted to do out in the open the kind of thing that David does to Uriah the Hittite. What would protect you? Who would protect you? If the king decided that the king wanted not just a pretty woman, not just any woman, not necessarily even a single woman, if the king decided that the king wanted your woman, maybe, just maybe, the king would come after you. Or maybe the king would just send for your woman and have her brought to him. And maybe it would all be very quiet, hush, hush. But absent a compact, absent a contract or covenant or constitution saying, we put these limits, we establish that these are the boundaries past which governing authorities cannot go. If you didn't put something like that together and all sign on to it and say, this is what we agree to stand together to ensure is the proper boundary and proper limitation of government, absent that, it was just you against the full weight and measure of however much power the king could bring to bear against you. And actually, for those who think there's something untoward, if you do have a king in writing up a document that says, okay, these are the boundaries, here are the... <laughs> limits of what we will permit you to tell us to do or to not do. You know, for those who think that there's something untoward about that because that's very provocative, that will initiate a conflict, especially if the king doesn't especially like being told 
that you plan to tell him no on certain things if he asks, if he demands them, if he orders them. Actually, I would argue that once this is in place, this is going to promote much more peace, much more peace than if a conflict has to rise to the level of an out-and-out civil war in your country in order to roll back a long train of abuses. The American War for Independence was kind of like a civil war. It really was. I mean, it was a war for independence. It was a war of reasserting their rights as men before God, inalienable rights before God, their rights as Englishmen, which they should have been afforded. And just because they had traveled across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World, that didn't mean that those rights ceased to be theirs. And yet it was being supposed that because they didn't have the strength or because they were out of sight, out of mind, anything could be imposed on them, anything could be taken from them, and they had no recourse. I bring this up. I bring this up because actually passages exactly like 2 Samuel chapter 11 with David sending for Bathsheba and then sending for Uriah and then giving orders to Joab to put Uriah on the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest. Passages just like this have for a long, long time brought God's people, students of the Bible, to a number of important questions that can't just be abstract. They can't just be trivial, like, hmm, yeah, you know, disaffected, detached, keeping them up in the theoretical. No, they they have to be, in order to actually matter, in order to make a difference, they have to be applied. They have to be universally true. What should Bathsheba have said? Should Bathsheba have declined the summons? What would have happened to her if she had? For that matter, should Uriah have just gone on home like he was told by David? For that matter, should Joab have told David, absolutely not? Have you lost your mind? Absolutely not. I'm not doing that. These kinds of questions as to how we relate to people in authority over us are not just abstract philosophical pastimes. These are extraordinarily practical right now, today, because we have authorities that are instituted by God. We have institutions that are instituted by God. We have people who, at their best, at their very, very best, might be of the caliber of a David, but then it's much more likely that they won't be, that they'll be of a worse sort. They'll be the kind who abuse their power, if not observed, if not watched closely, if we don't have the willingness to tell them no at a certain point. No, we're not doing that. And then if they do it anyways, or we don't tell them no, and they want to cover up their indiscretion, because why, by the way, because why, why did David want to cover up his indiscretion? Because not the de- not, not that God wouldn't know, but because the people would know. And because why would that matter? Because the people knowing it would get right at the core of this consent of the governed business. When a government stops protecting your rights and becomes the primary threat to your rights, it's the right of the people to alter or abolish their form of government. That is to say, to remove people from their government, from presiding over them. That's what David was afraid of, and rightly so. So then a constitution actually is a deterrent. It's more likely to protect not just the people from abuses by the king or government official of a lower 
rank, it's also more likely to protect the king and all of his lower magistrates from being tempted to abuse if it's said on the front end, this will not be permissible. This will not be tolerated. You cannot command us to do this, 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 to take part in this, 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 to take these things away from us. You can't just do it without due process, establishing that a law has been broken, which was announced beforehand. For instance, somebody accused of a crime has the right to be tried by a jury of their peers. Why is that relevant? Because it can't be that they're tried by the same person who may just want their stuff, who's in a position of authority and can destroy them. You know, the same guy who wants your plot of land and the house that's on it and the livestock that grazes in the field back behind your house and that pretty wife of yours who lives in that house, that same judge, if he's the king who wants that plot of land, if he's also the one who can make a law saying you can't have X, Y, and Z and then accuse you of having violated the law and then haul you into court and then he becomes your judge, jury, and executioner. Well, we know exactly what he will be tempted to do. And so you separate it out. You break out the components of authority so that you don't have judge, jury, and executioner all being somebody who is superior to you. You have a jury of your peers, other people who are at the same level as you. And why does it need to be a lot of them? Because maybe one of them could be compromised and stand to gain. It's not likely that all of them simultaneously will be compromised and stand to gain from your downfall. It's more likely that there will be objective ruling with regards to the facts of your case. Back to John Dinan's piece, though. He writes, under the heading, The Reliance on Natural Law and Natural Rights in State Constitutions. Founding-era state constitutions frequently relied explicitly on the natural law principles enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Admittedly, states differed in their willingness to invoke these principles, with some states, such as South Carolina, Georgia, New Jersey, and New York, declining to make explicit reference to natural or inherent or inalienable rights. States also differed in the particular wording they used to express these principles. What stands out from a review of the totality of the founding era state constitutions, however, is the repeated reliance on natural law principles and widespread understanding that individuals are entitled by nature to the enjoyment of certain rights, have an inherent right to live under a republican government, and possess an inalienable right to reform or abolish governments that fail to secure these rights or operate with the consent of the governed. A number of founding era constitutions opened with provisions declaring the natural rights that all individuals possess prior to formation of the social compact. The states that included such provisions were remarkably consistent in mentioning life, liberty, property, happiness, and safety in the list of foundational natural rights. In this sense, the Declaration of Independence is the outlier in founding era documents in including only life, liberty, and happiness, I should say pursuit of happiness, not just happiness, but the pursuit of happiness. The Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 is typical. The first substantive provision after the preamble stated, quote, that all men are born equally free and independent and have certain natural, inherent, and inalienable rights, amongst which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, end quote. 
In fact, Vermont Constitution makers were explicit about the universality of this principle and its application to slavery. After stating verbatim the principle above from the Pennsylvania Constitution, the Vermont Constitution of 1777 proceeded to draw out its implications, declaring, quote, Therefore, no male person born in this country or brought from overseas ought to be beholden by law to serve any person as a servant, slave, or apprentice after he arrives to the age of 21 years, nor female in like manner after she arrives to the age of 18 years, unless they are bound by their own consent after they arrive to such age or bound by law for the payments of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like, end quote. In addition to including these foundational declarations of natural rights, state constitutions were at times explicit about the natural rights grounding of other liberties. Not all rights were grounded in natural law principles, as these state constitutions made clear. Freedom of speech and press trial by jury, protection against unreasonable searches, and the right to bear arms were several of the various rights that were protected in founding era constitutions, but were not grounded explicitly in natural law principles, as when the North Carolina Constitution of 1776 stated, quote, that the freedom of the press is one of the great bulwarks of liberty and therefore ought never to be restrained, end quote. Certain rights were clearly recognized as natural and inalienable, especially religious freedom, as when the North Carolina Constitution proclaimed, quote, that all men have a natural and inalienable right to worship Almighty God, according to the dictates of their own consciences, end quote. The New Hampshire Constitution of 1784 provided the most sustained explanation of the status of natural rights and the natural rights basis of religious liberty immediately after providing a standard statement about the natural rights to life, liberty, property, and happiness. The New Hampshire Constitution went on to explain, quote, when men enter into a state of society, they surrender up some of their natural rights to that society in order to ensure the protection of others. And without such an equivalent, the surrender is void. This was then followed by a provision to the effect that, quote, among the natural rights, some are in their very nature inalienable because no equivalent can be given or received for them. Of this kind are the rights of conscience, end quote. Now we'll just pause right there. Pause right there and let's translate this into more of the modern vernacular. I sign a offer letter, let's say. October of last year, I did. I signed an offer letter, offer of employment from my current employer, wherein they stated who they were, stated the job title they wanted to offer to me, the role on their team, the job duties, briefly, where I would work, who I would report to, what I would be paid, what other benefits I could expect, and when I would start working. I signed and I dated that offer letter and I returned it to them. And then what followed was collecting of my information, my private information, so that they could put it into their database and be able to work well with me. I may have a right to privacy. I surrendered some of that right to privacy in exchange for they're being able to pay me, for instance. It's not common knowledge. I don't make it public what my bank account number is, for instance. Nobody else other than a very select few number of people that I pay or I receive money from 
or my wife knows my checking account number. The bank knows my checking account number. My employer knows my checking account number, but it's not common knowledge. I have the right to keep that information private. Why? Because that's my money. I give up access to that information so that somebody can pay me. I also agree that I'm going to be paid such and such an amount per hour that I work on their behalf. They give me tasks and they ask me to do these tasks and I tell them how long I took to do those tasks plus I deliver the results. In exchange, they pay me and I agreed that this is a good trade. So I have a right to liberty, but then I've agreed that they get to tell me what they want me to do or what they need me to do. And I agree that I'm going to spend my time doing those things. And then in exchange, I receive money. I have not signed a contract saying that I'm going to die (laughs) for a certain amount of money, right? So I have the right to life and that's not in question here. I have the right to pursue happiness. I didn't sign a contract saying that if they pay me X and such and such an amount of money, I agree to not be happy. You know, no, that wasn't part of it, right? Nobody asked me to be unhappy. So while I do the work, I'm going to try to be happy. I'm going to try and protect and preserve my life. That's all reasonable. I have an inalienable right to those things. I have a certain freedom, but then I exchange some of that freedom and I give some of my life over And I may be willing to sacrifice some of my short-term happiness because it's not the happiest thing I can possibly imagine to do all of what they ask me to do in exchange for money, but then it's a trade-off, right? It, It works like that with regards to being a part of a community, being a part of a church, being a part of a country, being a part of a family. It works like that where there are certain things that you're exchanging and you're negotiating, but then your conscience, what you believe to be right, who God is, how he calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth, that is not something that somebody should be able to just curtail and say, nope, you don't get to go to church anymore. Yep, that's what it means to be an American citizen is you just do whatever the government tells you. And if the government tells you you can't go to church anymore, well, that's what you signed up for when you were born here, however many years ago. Yeah, you pledged allegiance to the United States of America or the flag of the United States of America and the country for which it stands. And so therefore, if your government tells you you can't go to church anymore, well, that's just what it is. You pledged allegiance to the country for which that flag stands. And so therefore, if they tell you to put on several masks and wear them for hours and hours and hours, even at the cost of your health and your happiness, your pursuit of happiness and your life even, possibly, if you get really sick, even at the expense of your liberty, well, then that's what it is, right? That's just what it is. No, 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 no. See, this is why certain of these rights were put in to the Constitution, and this is why they were put into the preamble of our founding documents and the founding documents of these various states, because these are inalienable rights. And if a government tells you that you don't have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, objectively, period, in fact, they'll abolish those things. They're going to take your life, even though you've committed no law violation, you've broken no law, even though you've done nothing deserving of death. If they do that, well, then they've just betrayed the whole purpose for them being your government in the first place. David being loyally served by Uriah, when Uriah doesn't know that there's anything 
funny that's gone on between David and Bathsheba. If David says, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, Uriah does what his king tells him to do, or he serves the general intent of the government, which is what? To fight against Israel's enemies, the Ammonites. David says, go home to your family. And there's an overriding principle of honor to the larger purpose of government, which supersedes in Uriah's mind, going home to be with his wife, which is, oh, by the way, it's a ruse anyways. I mean, it's it's not something that David has a reasonable demand on. I demand that you go home. Well, what's being implied when you say you can go on home, go spend some time with your wife, is this is a favor. This is a kindness. It's a gift that's being offered. But then that is to say too, when it turns out and we know the backstory, we know David has actually taken Uriah's wife and laid with her and gotten her pregnant. We know that David has already violated the whole basis for him having authority over Uriah in the first place, which is to protect Uriah's rights, to protect the rights of the people of Israel. To what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. When the Ammonites come in and they want to take the lives of Israelites, that's when you need a governing authority that says, no, (laughs) we say no. You can't do that to our people. You can't kill our people. No. How about liberty? The Ammonites come in and they say, we're going to make slaves of your people. It's the responsibility of the governing authority to say, no, we're not going to let you take slaves of our people, make us all into slaves of you. No, we say no, and we'll fight you if you don't accept our no as the answer. How about the pursuit of happiness? That's not a guarantee of happiness, but then the pursuit of happiness is related. It's distinct from life and liberty. What's your life for if somebody says, well, you're not allowed to be happy. Every time I see you happy, I try to take what makes you happy away from you so that I can have that because I'm an envious, covetous person. I'm a jealous, greedy person, and I'm vindictive, and I'm cruel. No, you're not going to be a slave. No, I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to make you miserable. I'm going to try and forbid you from doing or having anything that makes you happy when I can't have that thing. You have a very beautiful wife, and you're very happy that you have this very beautiful wife. Of course you are. Why wouldn't you be? Good for you, Uriah. I'm going to command you to put away your wife so I can have her because you don't have any right. Your happiness is a privilege. No, it's not. The pursuit of happiness is not a privilege. The pursuit of happiness is an inalienable right. And what is that happiness anyways? That's the right to be prosperous, to be successful, to be purposeful, and to actually accomplish the purpose for which you were created and to feel that satisfaction of accomplishing the purpose for which you were created. If somebody says, nope, you can't have that. You can't enjoy that. I'm opposed to your happiness. It's not the same thing as murdering you. It's not the same thing as enslaving you, but it's near enough the same thing as it destroys your quality of life for what? Because they're petty, because they're vengeful, because they're cruel. A government does not have a superseding right to make you miserable because you're happier than other people. Say, for instance, those who are in the positions of government authority. They don't have a right to that. If they're with contempt, trampling on your pursuit of happiness or putting your life in danger for no good purpose at all, just because actually maybe they want you out of the way. Say again, in the case of David, putting you on the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, is the hardest, and then ordering everybody else to pull back. You know, if Uriah had known that on the front end, would he have been in the clear to just not show up to work that day? I think so. I think so. Just like we say, David was in the right to be 
on the run to flee for his life when Saul wanted to murder David, Uriah would have been totally in the right. He had every right to not show up for work that day. If somebody would have tipped him off that, hey, you know, David, um, David wants you dead because he wants your wife for himself. Uriah would be well within his rights, God-given rights, to preserve his own life and not show up for work that day. Why? Because that would be a betrayal of the whole basis for David's kingship over the whole of Israel, you might say at a certain point, but certainly over Uriah in particular, personally in that moment. For that matter too, the right of conscience is important here because without that, whatever David tells Joab, Joab must do. No, no, no. The Nazis did that at Nuremberg when put on the trial, many of them, not all, some of them were totally unapologetic. Yeah, yeah, I was really good at my job. I killed a lot of Jews. But others were very embarrassed and they wanted a way out of accountability for their war crimes, their atrocities, murdering innocent men, women, and children en masse by the tens and hundreds of thousands, by the millions. And they said, I was just following orders. No, that will not do. You have the inalienable right to conscience. And if you don't, well then, it doesn't make sense that we would punish anybody who was just following orders. As long as they can blame it up the chain of command to the guy at the very, very tippy top, you only just punish that guy. That's not how it works. Those people only died because you were following orders. And you say, well, somebody else would have followed the orders if I wouldn't have. So what? Then that person would be guilty, right? So all this is to say, the idea of natural rights, the idea of natural law, which is to say, as a Christian, the idea that God rules and reigns over the universe. He's a God of order. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of goodness who has expressed what is right. We know it's written on our hearts. There's a general revelation component to this, but then also he's written it in his word. The founding era citizens of this country knew that. They were acquainted with both types of revelation, general and special, and they baked this conviction that God is a God of order and a God of righteousness and a God of justice and a God of goodness, a God of good purposes who created us with a good purpose and also has commanded us to love our neighbor as ourselves. They baked this into their constitution making. And they didn't just say, whoever the guy is at the very, very tippy top, which is, I mean, embodied no better than in the divine right of kings. Political theology, Samuel Rutherford was right. The king is not the law. Law is king. Law is king because it comes from God. And if it doesn't come from God, well, then it's not really actually natural law. And it's not actually really the case that you have inalienable rights to be created with equality, inalienable rights. You have to be created in the first place, which is to say you have to have a creator. They knew that to the extent that we've forgotten it. We also are not taking seriously our own founding documents, the checks and the balances and the limits on our own governing authorities, which is a dangerous thing when you consider that, again, the best, the best, the best of men maybe will be of the caliber of King David and even the very, very best of men in that case will be sorely tempted when they see a beautiful woman who's somebody else's wife bathing from their rooftop while her husband is away fighting the country's wars. Back to the conclusion of John Dinan's public discourse piece, though, from 2021. Interestingly, the right to emigrate was another right occasionally grounded in natural law principles. According to the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, quote, all men have a natural inherent right to emigrate from one state to another that will receive them or to form a new state in vacant countries 
or in such countries as they can purchase, whenever they think that thereby they may promote their own happiness, end quote. Several founding-era constitutions were also explicit about the inherent right of the people to enjoy a republican form of government. The New Hampshire Constitution of 1784 opened by declaring, quote, All men are born equally free and independent. Therefore, all government of right originates from the people, is founded in consent, and instituted for the general good, end quote. In a similar vein, but employing slightly different language, the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776 stated, quote, that all power being originally inherent in and consequently derived from the people, therefore, all officers of government, whether legislative or executive, are their trustees and servants and at all times accountable to them, end quote. Finally, and flowing from the understanding that individuals possess natural rights and cannot be governed without their consent, Many founding-era constitutions recognized an inalienable right of the people to reform or abolish governments that fail to secure these rights or act for the common benefit. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 was typical in making clear that, quote, the people alone have an incontestable, unalienable, and indefeasible right to institute government and to reform, alter, or totally change the same when their protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness require it, end quote. Natural law principles did not provide the sole guidance for founding-era constitution makers. They also drew on the rights of Englishmen, as set out in the Magna Carta and Bill of Rights of 1689, as well as conceptions of popular sovereignty developed through experience of colonial governance. Nevertheless, there is no mistaking the strong influence of natural law principles on the founding era state constitutions that provided the context and in many respects served as models for the federal constitution. And therein is the end of this piece by John Dinan in the public discourse from August of 2021. To wrap up, it's important for all our sakes that we would pay attention that we would believe that man is created by God with certain inalienable rights. It's important that we would believe life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not happiness, not that you're guaranteed happiness, but the pursuit of happiness, that these are inalienable rights that come from God. They don't come from the government. If you believe that they come from the government, then you believe that they're privileges that the government can revoke anytime the government wants to. But then what is that? Why would you ever trust the government with that sort of freedom over you, that sort of power over you to just revoke those rights, those privileges, so-called, anytime they please, any way that they please, without due process, without consent, without persuading you. Why would you give that kind of power unless you've been convinced that the people who preside over your government are inherently good, they are better than you, inherently superior to you, and they are the law. That is to say, why would you give total power over yourself, over your effects, over your family, over your property, total power without any checks, without any balances, without any boundaries to such men, unless you, after a fashion, agree with the divine right of kings people. But then doesn't that basically just say might makes right at a certain point? The governing authority is who? Ultimately, According to the Christian who reads their Bible, God is the governing authority, king over all kings, God over all gods, 
the Most High. If God presents us in his word with David, the man after his own heart, who did so much that was noble, so much that was praiseworthy, David even in 2 Samuel 11, taking another man's wife, what we don't say is, well, because he was king, it was okay. God didn't say that. The thing that David did displeased Yahweh. What we don't say is, well, because David was king, it was his right to engage in an elaborate attempt at deception with Uriah, trying to get Uriah with his wife so that it would look like this was his child. Yeah, it was okay because he was king. God doesn't say that. Well, okay, but, you know, he's the commander in chief. And so, you know, he, it's okay for him to order Uriah to the front of the fighting where the fighting is the fiercest and then have everybody else pull back. And, you know, it's not like he directly killed the guy. I mean, don't be a conspiracy theorist, right? God didn't say that. Some or all of what we read David doing and saying in 2 Samuel chapter 11 displeased God. Why? Because it violated God's purpose expressed to David and all Israel for how his people would conduct themselves, how they would relate to each other, how they would relate to him. That is to say, it was sin. It was wickedness. It was evil. As we'll find, as we read forward, there are consequences not just for David, not just for Bathsheba, but for the whole nation of Israel, as there always are consequences in these kinds of circumstances. This is why we have to take seriously when we have a constitution that it's taken seriously in a practical way. You know, it's just a piece of paper, just like the law of Moses is just a piece of paper, unless God himself has said, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And because God has said, thou shalt, thou shalt not, it's not just a piece of paper. This is a reminder. This is a memo. Remember, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A people reap what they sow too. But then also, humanly speaking, the law of Moses, for instance, or our constitution, it's only as protective of our rights as we are willing to actually enforce it. Yeah, you can write anything you want. But then again, going back to the functional liberalism thing, you can say you agree with these things doctrinally. This is what you believe about God and about church and about salvation and about the state of man. This is what you believe about the scriptures. If you don't do any of that, if you don't behave any differently as a result of that, you are just like the world. You just talk a little funny. You just go to church every now and then. Then it's a form of godliness. You honor God with your lips and your heart is far from him. If you say that you honor the constitution, but then you don't actually know what it says. You don't actually think through the ramifications. You don't actually put it into practice. You don't actually apply it. It's not going to do anything for you. This constitution that we have presiding over our whole government in the United States, it's a worthless and possibly even actually dangerous illusion if we are not willing to actually enforce it. If people make oaths that they will uphold it and they're not actually held to those oaths, when they violate those oaths, we won't say anything. We won't object. We won't say, well, but that this is right here. You can't do this, actually. If we won't say that sort of a thing, if we're not even willing to look at it to see whether we need to see that sort of a thing, to see whether and when we need to raise an objection, call a point of order, well then, how different are we? This is my final thought to leave you with. How different are we from all of the people, whether they're named or not, 
in 2 Samuel chapter 11, who see this temptation of David building up to eventually the murder of his faithful servant, and they say nothing, or they're recorded just doing whatever they're told. If they say anything, it's not no, it's not mm mm-mm, except in the case of Uriah, you know, the one guy who's willing to say, no, I can't, I can't in good conscience do that, ends up dead by the end of the story. Is that what we're afraid of? I think so. In many cases, we're afraid that if we started to say no, ultimately, we would get offed. But then what does that say about where we're at right now? Relative, the documents that we have and the people we have in positions of power and authority. I'm not saying nobody who serves in our government actually is intent on upholding the constitution. I'm saying most of us have just taken it for granted that those people make up a small portion and we can't count on them. We can't expect them, but then neither are we prepared to roll up our sleeves, do the digging, come to our conclusions, formulate arguments for fixing this, reforming our government. And so are we not complicit in the erosion of not only our own rights, but then the violation of the rights of our countrymen? Joab betrayed Uriah. It wasn't just David. Joab could say, I was just following orders. No, Joab also betrayed Uriah. Bathsheba betrayed Uriah. All of the men who followed the order to pull back and let Uriah get cut down, they betrayed Uriah. The servants who went back and forth delivering these messages, and they didn't warn Uriah, presumably. They betrayed Uriah. One guy has his rights completely trampled on as he's doing his duty. Is that the sort of people that we are, that we're content for the equivalent of Uriah in our context, if we're not Uriah, the equivalent of Uriah in our context, to be run roughshod over, and we'll say nothing about it. We won't warn them. We won't give them a heads up. We won't object. We won't say, no, I can't, I can't be a part of that. Is that who we are? I hope not. I pray not. If so, God have mercy. But then that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.